heard how are you um, <laughs> yeah uh today's been a bit of a bit of an ordeal <laughs> it's been a what it's been a bit of a of a weekend you yeah. had your thing going on i found mm-hmm. cannabis growing in my garden <laughs> so is it confirmed it's that that's a, yeah it's 100 percent. it's 100 percent. oh weed. nice <laughs> well at least yeah. now you don't have to worry about like the cops or anything yeah i keep joking that i'm going to use it to start my own like <laughs> high-end artisanal dispensary, dispensary. <laughs> yeah well that's cool that's much better than my whole like i uh basically my face has been on fire all day for some reason so yes yeah some weird fucking allergic reaction to something but but you know what we've powered we've powered through mm-hmm. and, and here we're- we are and we're here for you all, so um, we, we should appreciate it. <laughs> we should we should mention, by the way, that our next episode is going to be a return of a weirdest thing podcast. I think yes, um, yeah, that's at least the plan as of now. <laughs> you sound less sure than you did yesterday. <laughs> that very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, yeah. I just I have family coming into town, so uh, Amelia is going to be uh, hopefully finding. Hopefully, a yeah. Hopefully yeah. finding a guest. Hopefully flying solo, and that I won't be, you know, with Scotty, <laughs> and we'll hopefully be. Hopefully, I won't be completely solo. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm Amelia Umpuero. Oh yeah, and I am Scotty Milder. And this, and this is... is the worst thing. <laughs> the weirdest thing about guests. Yeah. So my story is first. I'm just gonna dive in. Yeah. And you know, the whole concept of the podcast has always been like whatever internet rabbit hole we've found ourselves sucked down over the years. Yeah. Um, and this is like one of the very first ones. This is actually the story uh, I'm going to tell today is one that I've been kind of wanting to do from the start, but I was never quite sure exactly how to approach it. And it's a, uh, well, it's another typically happy, fun time, Scotty Milder story. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a lie. Um, this is, this one's a bummer. And I do want to give a content where I'm not going to give like, we're, we don't have a cold open particularly or anything, but okay. if you are like me, uh, severely aquaphobic, particularly afraid of like deep water, diving, drowning, yeah, things like that, uh, this may not be the story for you. Th- this week, I'm going to tell the story of uh, Bozeman's Gut in uh, South Africa and the final dive of Dave Shaw. Let's get into it. All right. So what is Bonesman's got? Um, oh, first, my sources. So yeah. uh, Wikipedia, as usual, although less than normal, a documentary from Nemesis Films. This is from 2020 called Dave Not Coming Back. Mm, okay. Another YouTube documentary uh, or documentary that I found on YouTube uh, called To Boldly Go, Dave Shaw's Final Dive. That's from 2005. Another YouTube video, David Shaw's Last Scuba Dive from 2010. And then the YouTube video is titled Dave Shaw and His Last Dive, and it's from 2015. But what it actually is is an upload of a 2005 ABC Primetime episode. Ooh, okay. Do you remember ABC Primetime? <laughs> their kind yes. of version of like 60 Minutes or Dateline. And then an article from Outside Magazine from 2004 
called Raising the Dead. Actually, I think it's from 2005, and it's called Raising the Dead. Okay, so what is Bonesman's Gut? Well, it's known in English as Bushman's Hole. Okay. It's a deep submerged sinkhole in the northern Cape province of South Africa. It has been dived, like, I think they're not 100% sure how deep it is, but the furthest depth that anyone has found so far is 927 feet. Okay. Uh, so it's a cenote, which is a natural pit, which is caused by the collapse of limestone bedrock exposing the groundwater. They're they're super common throughout the Yucatan. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the deepest cenote in the world is Zacaton in Tamaulipas, Mexico. Mm-hmm. It goes down uh, 11, over 1,100 feet. Uh, Bozeman's Gat is the third deepest in the okay. world. And I think it's actually, Bozeman's Gat is actually the biggest in the world. Because even though it's not deeper, I think it's got a bigger volume of water. Okay. And so, wait, yeah. what is it? Like, what is it again? It's basically, it's a sinkhole. So Okay. It's okay. like the it's like the the bedrock has collapsed in prehistoric times and it is just filled with groundwater. Yeah, you're making the appropriate face. <laughs> That's a nah. Um, so Bozeman's got is in the middle of the Kalahari Desert. Like it's in northern South Africa. And and it's crazy if you see like images of it from like an airplane, like this Dave Not Coming Back documentary starts with like a drone shot of it. It's just like flat desert with this like kind of small looking little cleft mm-hmm. in the ground, just like a little depression or kind of like a like a little canyon, a little stubby little canyon in the ground. It goes down about a hundred feet, I think. Until you get to this sort of swimming pool sized pond. Like it's it's very small and it's covered in algae. And the upper part, like if you dive into it, it's relatively shallow. It goes down, I think I read somewhere it's like down like 50 feet maybe. Okay. And you know, so it just seems like it's this little pond in the middle of the desert. But in fact, there's a cleft at the bottom of that little chamber, which leads to a chimney that's about 150 feet deep it's very narrow and that opens up into this massive chamber which is essentially big enough to hold the eiffel tower Mm -mm, mm -mm. yeah nope (laughs) so it was for like you know obviously uh native africans have known about this pond in this Mm -hmm. ravine forever but no one really knew that it was actually this ginormous sinkhole until a diver named Nuno Gomez was the first he dived down it. I think people had suspected there might have been something beneath it. So he dived down, he found the cleft, and he ended up descending into the chamber about 250 feet. That was in 1981. 1988, he went back and he descended to 400 feet and had gotten nowhere near the bottom. The first diver who ever touched the bottom was a guy named Sheck Exley. He descended in 1993 to 863 feet. And you'll get these different depths for the bottom, and it's because mm-hmm. it's an uneven bottom. It's like a slope. Right. You know. And I think during Sheck Exley's dive, Gomez was also involved with that. So he completed some sonar scans, and this is what revealed that Bozeman's got is the largest underwater cave that has ever been discovered. Um, it's about 250 feet across. It has an average depth of 770 feet. And like I said, it hits its deepest point or deepest discovered point at 927 feet. So, of course, this is like super popular with cave divers. Yeah. Which is, I want to just say, like, there's, I can see myself doing, like, a few sort of, like, daredevil-y type things. Like, I used to think, like, I could maybe imagine skydiving someday. I think I might have mm. outgrown that theory. Mm-hmm. I do, like, like driving along, like, steep, scary mountain roads and things like that. Um, but this whole cave diving thing, uh, that's, like, a hard no. 
Yeah. Caving in all forms for me is just kind of a... Mm-hmm. Let's see. You've never been to Carlsbad Caverns, have you? No, I haven't. And I don't have an issue with going into Carlsbad's cavern. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not like going into a cave. It's Mm -hmm. the stuff where it's fucking, I, you know, there's a (laughs) musical about it. And I went and looked up on it. Is it, is it Floyd Collins? That sounds familiar. That might not be the name of the musical I'm thinking of, but it's a it's a musical about a, a caver who went down into this cave and got trapped in there. And like, it, it's just, it's a, mm-hmm. like, it's just bad. And I am not aquaphobic. No, you're super not. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not looking to be dropped into the middle of the ocean and like, bye, right. <laughs> but it's caving regardless of whether it's air or water in there. Mm-hmm. That's a big, that's a big mm-hmm. no-go for me. Yeah, I'm not like so. The thing about Carlsbad Caverns, which is obviously here in New Mexico, and it's like a big tourist attraction. There's an elevator to the bottom. I mean, it's yeah. not like caving. There's a big know? like paved path. That There's goes a paved to. path that goes down, and it's super cool. It's worth going to. But I just last time I was there was probably 20 years ago. Um, I remember you know we were taking a guided tour, and they took us into one cave, and they were like, "You want to see how dark it really is down here?" And then they shut out the lights, and like you think you know darkness, but until yeah, you're no. in an area where actually there is no sunlight. Yeah, no, I again no interest, like, yeah. no interest in that. And I <laughs> so did look ma- it up. That musical is in fact Floyd Collins. It's beautiful, okay. very sad, and very haunting. Yeah. If you, if anyone has listened to my other podcast, Horror from the High Desert, uh, my episode with Douglas Ford, I think it was the second episode, we talk about the fact that apparently there's a whole network of underwater caves beneath Florida, and people go down there and die all the time. So there's just like floating corpses all beneath Florida, which... I mean, kind of tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so, you know, like I said, if you go into Carlsbad Caverns and they shut off, it's just like pure total darkness. Imagine that, but you're also under a thousand feet of water. No, like, I don't. I don't want to. Yeah. Well, you know, in, enjoy yeah. this story. Then. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mm, okay. <laughs> so as you can imagine, you know, like it's extremely popular with cave divers, mm-hmm. but diving here is extremely difficult one of the hazards is the fact that it's at a high altitude okay you know the entrance to like the pond level of it is at almost five thousand feet above sea level so it requires a decompression schedule which is equivalent to an 1100 foot dive at sea level to get to get to the i think the 800 some feet uh-huh it's the equivalent of an 1100 foot dive it's be, the altitude changes the biology okay. Uh, essentially what your body's doing with the gases and compression and stuff so a decompression schedule just so you guys know i'm sure you can sort of guess but it's basically the schedule that the amount of time a diver must take to ascend to remove the inert gases in the body because if you go you can go down super fast um that's no problem you can Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. like, and I'll get into it when I get into the dive. It took Dave Shaw, I think, 11 minutes to get to the bottom. Okay. But then for every minute you spend on the bottom of this cave, you have to take about an hour on the ascent. And that's because of the compression and because of the gases in your body. You basically need to like rise to different decompression points over like specific periods of time, let the gases in your body kind of expel themselves, then go to the next one. And then the next one, if you don't do that, you'll suffer what's called the bends, which I'm sure 
everyone's heard of. And basically the, the bends happens when these gases in your body, like the nitrogen and oxygen and stuff, will turn into like fizzy bubbles in your body. <laughs> and they can cause, and you can get them at any point, like place in your body they can cause like an embolism um it can cause severe pain and nausea extreme disorientation mm. it can cause paralysis it can kill you like you can just die of the bends is it reversible yes okay and i'll get to that as okay. we get into it um okay. it's reversible but i think it can cause right like permanent, permanent damage. damage okay um so there's a diver saying basically if you do the depth you do the time Fuck. okay if you're going down to these depths, you just have to plan on it's going to take yeah. time. And like when you think about like this submersible that just fucking imploded. Right. You know, there's a reason why like they have to be pressurized to a certain point because it, it's yeah. the same thing if you're you know, going in a submarine and the pressurization is off. It can also cause the bends. So, you know, again, <laughs> like super, n- none of this, none of this is anything I ever want to do. Yeah. So like I said, this is very dangerous. According to the outside article, there are really, and the article's from 2005, but at the time, there were really only about a dozen people in the world who had ever dived as far as Dave Shaw, who's the main person I'm going to be talking about tonight. Okay. And there had only been six people who'd ever gone deeper than him. And that's like anywhere in the world. Wow. Okay. Uh, one of the people who's gone deeper than him, like I said, is this Nuno Gomez, who was, he was the record for the deepest ever dive at Bozeman's got. Dave Shaw's friend, Don Shirley, who's another major part of the story, he likes to point out that more people have walked on the moon than have dived at these kind of levels. Wow. Yeah, because I think there's like 20 people have walked on the moon at this point. Yeah. Okay, so... One of the biggest risks, aside from the bends and the amount of time it takes you to ascend, one of the biggest risks with these kind of dives is something called narcosis. So this is basically caused by the gas mixture that you're breathing. Mm, Once you're at pressure, the gases start behaving in very unpleasant ways. Oxygen itself can become toxic. The nitrogen will begin acting like a narcotic. So divers compare it to drinking five martinis on an empty stomach. Ooh. Wow. And then helium. So a lot of these, the diving equipment uses what's called a trimix gas mixture, which is oxygen, nitrogen, and helium. And the helium will cause twitching fits if you're not careful. So it's, you got, you have to have the balance of gases just perfect. And there's really no way to avoid the narcosis at certain pressures. One thing you have to do is you have to breathe very slowly and deeply. You cannot start like hyperventilating because if you start breathing fast, then carbon monoxide will start building up in your lungs and you'll black out. So just basically everything can go wrong. (laughs) Okay. So let me just ask this question. You go down into this cenote. Mm -hmm. You're going hundreds of feet down. It's Mm -hmm. clearly going to be dark. Yep. Maybe you take a little lantern or something down Mm -hmm. there with you, Mm -hmm. but it's not even like you get to just be like, oh my God, like I saw this amazing view. Like I saw this beautiful thing. You just get the bragging rights of I did this. Like at least, right. Like at least when you go up to the top of Mount Everest, you're like, I fucking saw the world from the top of Mount Everest. Yeah. As you're choking to death at the top. As you're, yeah. (laughs) As you're, as you're up there and a Sherpa is having to like save your ass. Right. Right. At least you get to be like, I got to see that. But this is really just to be able to say, I did this. I've done it. It, It's like, and, and, you know, all these interviews with people who talk about this, Dave Shaw and these other divers, they say it's just, it's like, it's about pushing to your 
limits. You know, it's like really any kind of extreme sport. It's just like, it's about seeing what you can accomplish. I don't like, I don't want to be judgy (laughs) about this because I know plenty of people who do all sorts of daredevil-y type things. Yeah. But I just, I don't get it. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is that I'm, I'm not trying to come at it from a place of like stupid, but (laughs) it is a thing that I'm just like, I'm trying to understand what would make you be like, I've got to get to the bottom of Mm -hmm. that fucking underwater cave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and to me, it's like the people who do the extreme mountain climbing, you know, because like when you hike to the top of Everest, you can be up there for like 20 minutes and then you start to die you're, you're essentially after a certain point your your body is dying and you're still going up you know but again at least you have the view right at least you can yeah. be like okay i'm from the time at the you know the highest point on the fucking planet cool now i'm gonna go back down i just right. spent like three days getting up here and now i'm gonna go back down at least there's that but this is like i'm gonna go into a dark black yeah wet hole that i've got to be in for like 18 hours yeah this i mean this to me is more extreme but like even if you if you read interviews of people who've hiked everest or or go do k2 and things like that you're not really enjoying the view because like at some point you're just focused on survival and like it's just it's a certain type of person you know that i am not like i am not that type of person (laughs) yeah yeah hard same yeah so here's a quote from this outside magazine article this is from let's see who is it it's a guy named uh tom mount who's a technical diving pioneer supposedly it says today extreme divers are far exceeding any reasonable physiological capabilities equipment can go to those depths but your body might not be able to and like I said, they're just pushing further and further and further. Mm. Um, so like I said, Nuno Gomez was the first to hit the record. And I think it's still the record for the deepest ever dive to Bozeman's got. He dived to 927 feet in 1996. Um, and he almost died on this dive because he actually got stuck in the mud for two minutes before he could pull himself out. And you have like at the bottom, they talk about this. This is what happened to Dave Shaw is you really only have like five minutes before the narcosis and stuff is really just like taking over. How do you, okay. So you go down there. Mm-hmm. Then you have to spend like five hours coming back up. More like 10 hours. Okay. How do you like, how do you not get dehydrated? How do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, the dehydration. That's a good question. I don't, because I can't imagine you can drink while you're down there. No, you can't. Yeah. Let alone like, I mean, I, okay, sure. Maybe you can like carb load the day before, <laughs> right? <laughs> like eat a big plate of pasta. And maybe that's mm-hmm. all it is, is that it's just like, you know, it's like just, I'm just wondering about the body preparation beforehand. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, I think it's like extreme endurance. But like when you see like pictures of Don Shirley and uh, Dave Shaw, you know, they look like they're, they're guys who are like, I think in their early 50s when this all happened, they were in relatively good shape, but they weren't like fucking like, you know, bodybuilders or like, yeah, you know, so it's, I think it's a mental thing as much as anything. But yeah, so there's Nuno Gomes. He went down 927 feet. He was not using what's called a rebreather. I'll get into rebreathers here in a second. He was using an open circuit breathing system, okay. which is much more cumbersome. So he just went down and he got stuck, but then he immediately started coming back up. Um, but he set the record. A woman named Werner von Schaik, she set the world record for a deepest woman's dive in 2004 when she descended in Bonesman's got to 725 feet. 
That record has been broken a couple times since. Most recently in 2022, a woman named Karen Van Denover reset the woman's deep dive record by going to 809 feet. So as you can imagine, people who've gone diving at Bozeman's got like some of them have died. Some of them have not come back. Mm-hmm. So I think the first official death is recorded as being someone named Eben Layden in 1993. He blacked out at 197 feet. Um, they were able to pull him out immediately, but he couldn't be revived. Ugh. And then a year later, in 1994, a young man, 20-year-old uh, South African recreational diver named Dion Dreyer died while descending as part of a team. Um, and Dion Dreyer is going to be very important to this story. So like I said, he was 20 years old. Um, he was from Johannesburg. He was relatively new to diving when he died. I mean, he was only 20. He had only started about two years earlier. But by this time, he had already logged about 200 dives. And he was known to be a very conscientious. And one thing, like, you hear a lot about these people, and you definitely heard this about Dave Shaw and Don Shirley and his wife talk about this, is that they're not actually daredevils. Like, Mm -hmm. it's all about meticulous planning and being, like, mitigating risks as much as possible. But you can't, obviously, you can't get rid of all risks. And, like, one thing about Dion Dreyer is he was known, even though he was very young, he was known to be, like, a very conscientious diver. He was very careful. Like I said, he'd already done 200 dives. And so he was invited by the South African Cave Diving Association to do a dive at Bozeman's Got in 1994. It was over his Christmas break. So this is from Wikipedia. Um, and I think this is also from the outside article. It says they planned a descent to 150 meters which 492 feet and asked Dion to dive for support. He was thrilled. Two weeks before the expedition, Dion's grandfather had passed away. Mm -hmm. Sitting around a barbecue with with his family one night, Dion spoke with boyish hubris. He said, if he had a choice of how to go out in life, he'd like to go out diving. That was his father uh, quoting him. So when he was invited on this dive, his father was pretty much okay with it. You know, he knew that Dion was a very careful diver. He was, you know, already pretty well trained, but his mother had begged him not to go. She had already, she knew that Layden had died there the year before. And she was just like, please don't do this. But he went and did it anyway. And like in the documentary, they're interviewing his father and he says, you know, and his mother's worst fear came true. You know, our worst fear was realized. So on December 17th, 1994, they were doing a practice dive. The whole thing was because this Nuno Gomez was planning another deep technical dive later in the week. And I think they were like the support team for him. Okay. But as they were, uh, you know, they descended to this 492 feet. And as they were coming up, everything seemed fine. Like they could all see each other. They couldn't talk, obviously. But like Dion was giving people hand signals. And But then as they were ascending, someone looked down and they saw a light sinking into the dark. Mm-mm. Yeah. No one really knows what happened, but, you know, clearly something went wrong. Um, so here's a quote from that outside magazine. It says, a quick, confused diver camp came up one short. Team leader Dietlov Guillaume wasn't sure what was happening. Then another diver in the eerie glow of his submersible light dragged his finger across his throat. Guillaume desperately started swimming down, but stopped when he realized that the light below him was already more than 100 feet deeper and fading fast. Mm. I decided it was a suicide chase, he wrote in the accident report. Yeah. So what they think probably happened was something called uh, hypercapnia, which is the buildup of carbon dioxide in the lungs. Mm -hmm. They think he was probably just breathing too hard or breathing too fast. Mm -hmm. And he blacked out. And that was that. 
So obviously, like, the family was crushed. They wanted to get the body back. So two weeks later, his father, Theo, hired a remotely operated submarine from the De Beers Mining Company to try and get to the body. They were able to find his helmet, but there was no sign of him. So again, from Outside Magazine, it says, quote, resigning themselves to the idea that Dion would stay in the hole for eternity, Theo and Marie placed a commemorative plaque on a rock wall above the entry pool. He had the most majestic grave in the country, Theo says. And I said, well, this will be his final resting place. Hmm. So his body remained on the bottom of the cave for another 10 years until he was discovered by Dave Shaw. Okay. Um, So let's get into Dave Shaw. So Dave Shaw, he was an Australian pilot living in Hong Kong. He'd been raised in the town of Kataning in Western Australia and had begun his career as a crop duster when he was like 18 years old. And then he spent time, he was very religious. He and his wife were very religious. Hmm. So he had been a missionary pilot uh, for a while in Papua New Guinea. And then he began flying commercial airlines. At that point, he moved to Hong Kong and he began flying for uh, Cathay Pacific Airlines. I think he flew a 747. He had met his wife, Anne, at a Christian youth camp in Perth when he was 18. On their first date, he took her flying. 20 months later, they were married and then they they remained married until his death 30 years later. They had two kids, a son and a daughter. Uh, I think Stephen and I think Lindsay maybe was his daughter's name. I didn't write it down. In 1999... When he was in his early 40s, he went on a scuba diving trip with a 17-year-old son, Stephen, and he just fell in love with it. Mm. And very quickly, he began progressing into these technical dives and cave dives and stuff. And he became, within a few years, like one of the top cave divers in the world. He really pioneered the use of what's called the rebreather system. So a rebreather is it's an apparatus that actually absorbs the carbon dioxide from your exhalations. Mm-hmm. And it allows the recycling of unused oxygen. This is different from what's called an open circuit breathing apparatus, where basically you're just blowing the gas out into the water. Okay. That means you're wasting a lot of gas. So you need a lot more um, mm. gas. You can't, usually can't stay down as long. So from Outside Magazine, it says the oxygen supply is automatically monitored and adjusted by a digital controller strapped to a forearm. And pretty much the only oxygen consumed is that which the diver metabolizes. In contrast, divers using traditional open circuit gear inhale ice cold mixes and exhale huge volumes of gas into the water. Um, rebreather divers like to call them bubble blowers. As a result, extreme open-circuit divers often need a dozen or more gas cylinders, constantly court hypothermia, and without automatic control of their oxygen levels, end up breathing and absorbing more helium and nitrogen, which runs up a greater decompression tab. Okay. So by comparison, when Nuno Gomez had done his descent of Bozeman's gut, he was using an open-circuit breather. Like I said, he got stuck at the bottom, but he didn't stay at the bottom at all. He like, as soon as he got loose, he started on his way up. He ended up using 54,000 liters of gas. He had to spend 12 hours on the ascent to decompress. By contrast, on Shaw's first descent, he only used 5,800 liters, and he was actually able to like explore the bottom for several minutes. And this is how he was actually able to find Dion's body. Okay. Um, and then his ascent took nine hours and 40 minutes rather than 12 hours. Okay. I mean, you don't save that. I mean, you save a lot in the <laughs> amount of gas you use. But I mean, For there's sure. no way around sure. the decompression. But yeah, I was like, this is not like 12 hours versus two. Yeah. It's I think, 12 hours, hours versus nine hours and 40 right. minutes. <laughs> I think one of the big advantages, though, is that you don't have nearly the risk of hypothermia. Yeah. Which is which is a major. A, a bonus. Because it's a much warmer gas mixture, apparently, in a rebreather. 
Um, so he had actually designed his own closed circuit rebreather, and those became the model for commercially sold rebreathers. And like I said, he became one of the top very very short amount of time relatively became one of the top technical divers in the world. And it was in October of 2004 that he did his first full descent into Bozeman's Gat with his friend Don Shirley. And while doing that, he broke several records, including uh, for depth on a rebreather, because he went down to 890 feet, depth in a cave on a rebreather, depth at altitude on a rebreather, and then depth running a line. And what running a line means is, Don, does Don Shirley called it soap on a rope, where basically you drop a line from the top all the way down to the bottom of the cave, mm-hmm. and you just like go down the line. Okay. And that's how you get to the bottom. Okay. So a little bit about Don Shirley, who is essentially... They became essentially best friends within like immediately uh, within meeting each other. They became best friends. So Don Shirley, he was a British expatriate living in South Africa. He'd spent 22 years in the British Army. He'd served in the Falklands and the Persian Gulf. He retired in 1997 and he was already a recreational diver at this point. So once he retired in 97, he moved to South Africa. And while there, he started a diving school in an abandoned underwater mine called Komadi Springs. Hmm. Um, and while he was there, he would teach technical diving, cave diving, wreck diving, because like there's all these like mine tunnels and stuff you could go through. He married a South African woman named Andre Truter in 2003. And then, so here's his quote about Dave Shaw. He says, in the fall of 2002, a bearded man with an Australian twang appeared at Shirley's Dive Center. Hi, I'm Dave Shaw, the man said. Do you mind if I go dive your hole? Shirley sized up the bluff Aussie and liked what he saw. Soon Shaw was flying in regularly to dive, and Shirley went with him whenever he had time. In October of 2003 at Kamadi Springs, Shaw set a rebreather cave record of 597 feet with Shirley diving back up. Two days later, Shirley, with Shaw just behind him, became the first diver to reach the very end of the mine's deepest shaft at 610 feet. Shaw and Shirley had logged more than 100 hours underwater together in the nearly two and a half years they'd known each other. And then Shirley said, it was stunning being in the water with Dave, very relaxed. And in one of the documentaries, he's saying, you know, they would go on these dives and says, you know, it was just two guys, like, really enjoying being with each other, like, you know, spending this time together. Like, it's really sad because, like, Don Shirley, he's, like, he's got a very reserved kind of personality. So he's not very emotive, but you can just tell just this, like, brotherly affection that they had for each other. And he even said at one point in one of the documentaries, he said, I was an only child, but, like, Dave Shaw was like my brother. Mm. They'd only known each other, I think, for like three years. So, you know, they started diving Bozeman's God. I think they dove it a couple times, but it was this time in October of 2004 that he went down to the bottom at eight, or 890 feet, touched the, the floor. And he was exploring away from the main line and he just happened to stumble on Dion Dreyer's body. Mm. He actually had claimed that he had told Don, I think he told Don Shirley like the day before, he says, I had a dream that I discovered Dion's body. And Shirley said, Don Shirley said later that it was actually exactly where he dreamed that it would be. So who knows? But he, so he found the body. Basically he had this light that was like clipped to his hand. And I'll talk more about the light later. Like you brought up the, you know, it's dark. You can't see anything. We do have Mm -hmm. this little light that shows you about three feet in front of you probably clipped to his hand and he caught the glint off of Dion Dreyer's mask. So he went up to him and he found him floating or he was laying on his back. His arms were like floating at his side because they were still in the wetsuit and mm-hmm. the buoyancy of the wetsuit. And his face was totally skeletonized, which meant that they assumed 
that the body was probably skeletonized. That ended up being a mistake, and I'll get to that. And it ends up being a very important part of the story. Okay. Um, so from Outside Magazine, it says, Shaw turned immediately unspooling cave line as he went. He, he like, clipped cave uh, line to the body and then was dragging it back to the main line so that he could find his way back to it later. Right. Up close, he could see that Dion's tanks and dive harness snugged around a black and tan wetsuit appeared to be intact. Dion's head and hands exposed to the water were skeletonized, but his mask was eerily in place on the skull. Thinking he should try to bring Dion back to the surface, Shaw wrapped his arms around the corpse and tried to lift. And keep in mind, like you're, he's only supposed to spend about five minutes here at the bottom before right. the narcosis sets in. Right. It didn't move. Shaw knelt down and heaved again. Nothing. Dion's air tanks and the battery pack for his light appeared to be firmly embedded in the mud underneath him. And Shaw was starting to pant from exertion. This isn't wise, he chastised himself. I'm at 270 meters and working too hard. He was already a minute over his planned bottom time. So Shaw quickly tied the cave reel to Dion's tanks so the body could be found again and returned to the shot line to start his ascent. So he ascended to 400 feet where Shirley was waiting for him. Don Shirley checked to make sure like his gas and everything was working. And then the way they would communicate under water is they would have a slate that they would write on. And so he wrote on the slate, he says 207 meters found a body. So again, from outside magazine, it says Shirley left Shaw, who had another eight hours and 40 minutes of decompression to complete. If Shirley ascended, it occurred to him that Shaw would not be able to resist coming back to try to recover Dion. Shirley would have been content to leave the body where it was, but Shaw was a man who dived to expand the limits of the possible. He had just hit a record depth on a rebreather, and now he had the opportunity to return a dead boy to his parents and in the process do something equally stunning, make the deepest body recovery in the history of diving. And he says, Dave felt very connected with Dion, Shirley says. He had found him, so it was like a personal thing that he should bring him back. And then sure enough, when Shaw surfaced, he said, I want to try and take him out. One thing, and again, I have watched several documentaries about this. I've read a bunch of articles because, like I said, I got kind of obsessed with this story for a while. Mm -hmm. And I really don't want to be judgy of of Dave Shaw. And I Mm -hmm. think his heart really genuinely was in the right place. Yeah. He saw it as kind of part of his, like, Christian religious duty. But there's definitely some, like, hubris there. And there's definitely a, like, element of, like, can I do this? You know, I want to be the guy to, like, break these records. So, like, you can't say that there wasn't ego, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. So the last dive. So after resurfacing, he announced he'd found the body. And then he went to Theo and Marie Dreyer, the parents, and asked them if they could retrieve it. Or if he could go back to retrieve it. Dreyer's father, Theo, was ambivalent about it. He sort of was like, you know, this is what my son loved doing. This is probably where he would want to stay. But his wife, Marie, had never really come to terms with her son's death. And he thought, if you can get the body, please do for her. You know, so she can have some closure. So uh, Dave, Sean, Don, Shirley, they immediately started planning. Uh, One of the first things they did was consult experts about what they could expect of the body's condition the forensic experts like didn't exactly know yeah because it had been down there for 10 years 10 years yeah so they were like it's probably a skeleton but they didn't know for sure so they're going into this assuming it would be a skeleton okay wait question Mm -hmm. when we're talking about it being in a wetsuit when we're talking about like the body being in a wetsuit I'm just trying to figure out in anybody's mind how they think I'm going to pick this up and it isn't just going to deteriorate like bones and stuff is if even if it is completely skeletal. 
right? So this, so this, this is exactly was the problem they were confronting. Okay. He was afraid if I try to pull this body up, it's going to fall apart. Yeah. So he actually went to his wife and it should be known Anne and I, she's in several of these documentaries. She clearly like loved her husband. She supported him, but she wanted nothing to do with the dice. She, yeah. She, at one point she's like, I don't even like to get my hair wet. So she like generally would be like, don't tell me anything about the dive until after you come back. Right. But this time he had to tell her because he needed her help. And she ended up making a body bag for him. She took two pilot sleeping bags Mm -hmm. because it had to be long enough that they could get his like flippers and stuff and his tanks and everything in. Okay. So, or maybe I think they were going to, he was going to try and cut the tanks loose, but he needed to like be able to fit the flippers in. So she used these two pilot sleeping bags and he, and the plan was he was going to wrap them around the body come up you know and that was going to be it like i said she was always nervous about the dives but on this particular dive she said i want someone to call me as soon as you're on your way back up and he said sure yeah totally absolutely but what he actually left her the impression that the dive would be happening a day later than what it actually did she didn't she stayed back in hong kong she didn't come and i and it wasn't clear but it seems like he might have been like i'm not gonna tell her the day i'm going so that i can actually just call her that night and be like hey we did it i'm back i'm okay you know so she wouldn't worry you know Mm -hmm. but as a contingency he did plan to have a team member contact the minister of their church uh, to go and notify her if something went wrong. So this would have been his 333rd dive. Right, as it was his 333rd dive. He arrived in South Africa six days beforehand. Um, he immediately went to this Kamadi Springs where he and Don Shirley practiced the maneuver of getting the body into the body bag, where Don Shirley actually played the corpse. Like, went down there, stayed still. God. And he wrapped him in the bag. And, like, everything went totally smoothly. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> i know that's yeah you, you guys are not seeing the visual <laughs> of what i'm seeing of amelia's reaction it's just so like oh my god like i don't know it's just it's just planning like yes there's planning going mm-hmm. on but this is the hard thing about any like massive force of nature is that like maybe it's gonna act the mm-hmm. way that you think it is maybe it's not and everything is just as likely and in the primetime documentary, the the interviewer, who's an American guy, asked Don Shirley, he's like, did it ever occur to you that, like, you know, nature might essentially take over? And Don Shirley was like, yeah, I mean, it's always a chance. It's like you mitigate as much risk as you can, but you can't yeah. plan for everything. And one or two little mistakes can be catastrophic. And I'm going to get there because there were yeah. a couple mistakes. So everything went smoothly in this practice run. After that, they went and met. The rest of the team, the rest of the team included seven other recreational divers who were practiced on the rebreathers and then a group of police divers from Cape Town and Pretoria, Mm. because uh, since they're going to be dealing with a body, they had to have the police involved. And in fact, they even designated Bozeman's got during the duration of the dive, they designated it a temporary crime scene. And then to serve as the dive coordinator, and I've heard her referred to as the field marshal, it almost seems like. Or like in theater terms, you would think like stage manager or Mm -hmm. film terms, you would think like assistant director. But they got that Werner von Schick, who was the woman who had uh, hit the, uh, had established the the depth record. She was going to stay on top and just basically coordinate everything. So the plan essentially was they were going to like, they had this main line. They're going to have 
gas bottles at different intervals all the way down. They had, I think, 35 different backup cylinders all along the way. This would be in case both Dave and Don had a problem. And then also if if any of the reserve divers had any problems, okay. there should be plenty of gas somewhere on the line for everybody. And then nine divers would be stationed at various intervals along the way. So it's essentially like a chain. Right. With Don Shirley at the bottom. At, at I think 725 feet and then of course Dave Shaw would go all the way down and get the body the plan was you know it would take Shaw about they thought it would take him about 13 minutes to descend uh get to the body and then he essentially had a maximum of six minutes to try and get the body into the bag and to start coming up before the narcosis and everything else would just mm-hmm. be overwhelming like I said, you know, there was this bag that was sewn by his wife. He would bring it up to Shirley, who was stationed at the 725 feet mark, who would then start moving it up. And they would basically just daisy chain it up. Right. But of course, like at that depth, Dave would come up to 725 feet, but then that was his first decompression interval. He had to stay there for X amount of time. Right. It was going to be, they thought he was going to, with the amount of time he was going to have to spend at the bottom, the decompression clock would take about 12 hours. So it would be 12 hours in the water. But the body should make it to the top in about 80 minutes. That was the plan. And then Don Shirley also had, this ended up being very smart. He and saw because where where the water surface of the water is, like I said, it's in this steep ravine in the mm-hmm. desert. And so rather than try to hike the body out of the ravine, he, they they installed a rope and pulley system and a stretcher where they could just pull the body up along the cliff face. This would actually end up saving Don Shirley's life. Wow. They also had a doctor on hand, a guy, and I'm not going to try and pronounce his last name. It's Jack, and it's like Mentesius. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, as a doctor uh, who was like familiar with diving physiology. He was there in case of an emergency, but when he realized that there would be nine divers in the water, he almost backed out because he was like, there are too many potential bodies to deal with if everything goes wrong. Right. Um, And then again, also this ended up being very important. They had a decompression chamber transported to the edge of the ravine sitting on top. And this was in case anyone got the bends. So the biggest X factor, like this is all the planning. It all should have gone smoothly. But the biggest X factor, they really didn't know how this was going to go, is that Dave Shaw had enlisted a documentary filmmaker, a guy named Gordon Hiles, to film the recovery. And obviously, they're not going to send a cameraman down with him. Right. So Hiles designed a camera rig to go on a helmet that was, like, angled down so that it would basically mimic uh, his POV so you could, like, see his hands and stuff. But this caused a potential problem. One thing is that Dave Shaw was not used to diving with a helmet. Um, and then another thing is, like, his light. So the way that the lights worked is you would – it was on a cable. You You could clip it to your hand when you needed it to see – but when you needed to use both hands, it was in the way. So you mm-hmm. would take it off and kind of wrap it around your head and it would like hang around your shoulders. Okay. But with this camera, that move became almost impossible. And so they were like, we don't know is this light, like what is he going to do with the light if he needs to have both hands? And so he went and practiced in the swimming pool. Dave Shaw did. And he was like, oh, this will be fine. He says, because when I'm not using it, I can just like unhook it and it can just kind of float free. Don Shirley was not aware of that part of the plan and he said in the primetime inter- uh, prime special interview he said he would have advised against that he said a free floating light that's a potential hazard because it can get caught on something and that's exactly what would happen 
So, <sighs> so the day before the dive, Dave Shaw, he assembled the entire team. He told them, quote, the most important person on this dive is you. For me, the most important person on this dive is me. But look after yourself. If you have a problem, deal with your problem and forget about me. It's better to have one dead person than two. But he and Don, Don, who's going to be at the bottom, sort of like 100 feet above him, they did work out where if Dave was having a problem, he could kind of do a hand signal with the light to Don, and Don would know to like come down and try and help if he could. But again, like you have such a narrow window of minutes. Yeah. And one part of the problem was they were entering the water at different times. So like Dave entered the water. It was supposed to take him 13 minutes to get to the bottom. 13 minutes after he entered, Don Shirley entered and would start his descent. Mm-hmm. At this point, Dave is already at the bottom mm-hmm. doing his thing. Don should get to his point sort of just around the time that Dave is starting to come up with the body. And then the reserve divers coming in at different times after that. Their last uh, message to the dive team before the day was they said, if Dave doesn't make it or if I don't make it, we stay here. This was from Don Shirley. says, that's the end of the story. We don't want to be recovered. Okay. So the day of the dive, January 8th, 2005 at 6.13 a.m., Shaw went into the water. Um, Before he went down, like he and Don Shirley are kind of floating there side by side in their wetsuits. And before he went down, he shook Don Shirley's hand and he said, I'll see you in 20 minutes. And those were his last words. Right after Shaw went under, Dan Dreyer's parents, Theo and Marie, hiked down to the edge of the water to wait for their son's body to come up. They purposefully waited until after Shaw descended because they didn't want to like get any additional sense of pressure for him. You know, they were like, they didn't want him to feel any more duty than he already did because he had to take care of himself. So uh, 13 minutes after Shaw entered the water, Shirley started his descent. And as he went down the line, he looked down and he, and as he was kind of halfway down, he could see Dave Shaw's light about 400 feet below, which was, and it was about where he expected it to be, but it wasn't moving. And that was, and he already knew this was a very bad sign because Dave should have already been ascending to the first decompression point with the body, but there was no movement, no bubbles. Yeah. Um, so this is from Outside Magazine. It says, there's no room for emotion or panic in the bowels of a dark hole. Shirley stayed calm, his actions becoming almost automatic. Shaw hadn't signaled for help, but Shirley would be going to the bottom. A motionless diver at 886 feet is almost certainly a dead diver. But it was Dave Shaw down there. Shirley had to see if there was anything he could do, or at least clip Shaw to the shot line so his body could be recovered. Okay, here we go then, he said to himself, and he started to try to go down to the bottom. But at about 800 feet, he heard a, like a loud crack and then a thud. And he looked and his digital controller for his rebreather had shattered. Mm. this meant that to regulate his gas he basically had he had these like knobs and he had to like do it manually kind of guesswork and at that point there was no way to make it down to dave so he started he got back up to the 725 feet foot decompression mark and was kind of just waiting up above not knowing about what was going on below a couple of the support divers started to come down uh, a guy named dusan stoyakovic and the, another guy named mark andrews they were supposed to station themselves together at 492 feet and when they got there they expected to see don shirley coming up with the body but there was nothing like they didn't see any lights after waiting mm. six minutes they started their own ascent back up. And so Stoyakovic said, uh, there's no heroics in this diving. You dive your own plan. As they started up, they finally saw a light below, but they didn't know who it was. So they rode on a slate because they were 
passing a couple other support divers as they were coming up. They wrote on a slate, they said, quote, did not meet D plus D at 150 meters down for six minutes, one light below, question mark, not sure D's light off. Um, and then they continued up with the slate as the other divers stayed there. So one of those support divers was a guy named Peter Herbst. He was one of Don Shirley's best friends. He was supposed to stop at 275 feet, but he ended up, he kept going down to 400 because this was like his best friend, Don Shirley in there. Yeah. And so like the quote from the article, uh, he was just like, just a little bit further, just a little bit further, just a little bit further. He made it down to 400 feet where he finally met Don Shirley. He was coming up. Don gestured for a slate. Peter Herbst passed him over the slate and Don wrote, Dave not coming back. So then Peter Herbst took the slate and he started back up. At this point, this is when that uh, Von Shake, the woman who was um, mm -hmm. the dive coordinator, she received the first slate. And she actually, because of the handwriting, she couldn't quite tell what it read. And she thought it said there were no lights below. So she thought that meant both Don and Dave were dead. Mm -hmm. um so at this point they went into an emergency plan uh the dryers left um apparently marie dryer was just inconsolable Ugh. and then uh i think someone from the documentary crew was dispatched to notify dave shaw's wife's minister Ugh. who went who back in hong kong went to her and basically they were like they're still trying they're still hope but she's but and all the documentary she's like she knew she knew there was no hope yeah. So this is from the outside article. So the dryers backed away from the water, helpless to do anything, and made their way to the farmhouse. Marie was in agony, crying and thinking about Shaw's wife and family. Mm. She wandered into Shaw's room and saw his shoes, wallet, cell phone, and clothes all neatly laid out. It's like he's coming back soon to use it all again, Marie thought, but she knew that he wasn't. So Don Shirley is still down there. He's, you know, trying to make his descent, but he's trying to do this thing with the, you know, the gas manually. And as he got, as he was getting close to the roof of the chamber at about 164 feet, he suddenly started feeling faint and the world started spinning. He said he felt like he was in a washing machine. No. Um, this is because he had developed an inner ear bend. Uh. So he still had about eight hours that he had to remain. And actually, when he looked at his like depth gauges, he realized he had he was supposed to stop at 151 feet, but he had somehow made it up to 114 feet. Oof. So he like made himself go back down. But at this point, as he's going down, then he's being hit by nausea and he starts vomiting underwater. Oh, like basically the way he described it was like he would take the rebreather out, vomit, quickly put it back in as he's spinning, completely disoriented. So. From the outside magazine, it says, fighting the vertigo and nausea, he managed to grab some spare gas cylinders from the cluster clipped onto the shot line nearby. The thought that he might die never occurred to him. I will survive. I will survive. He kept telling himself. So then another reserve, and I forgot to write down the guy's name, but another reserve diver appeared. Uh, Shirley wrote on the slate, basically, I'm not doing good. I'm in bad shape here. Got vertigo. I'm sick. Mm -hmm. Diver made sure to check his gas mixture. And then I think he clipped him to the shot line so that he wouldn't go just spiraling off. Mm -hmm. And basically, Von Shake began just like cycling divers down to help him, which was very risky because anyone could develop the bends on the way. And in fact, as Peter Herbst, they suspected he had a mild case of the bends, but he went back down anyway to help and they were basically just going down to help him like yeah uh, regulate his gas and work with the rebreathers he kept keeps vomiting a message was sent to his wife uh andre and so she sent a message down written on a slate and it says message from andre i love you you better hang in there or else Ugh. so after about 10 hours of this well 10 hours total in the water 
he was finally brought out severe decompression sickness they put him on the stretcher that was had meant, been meant for Deion Dreyer's body, and they like zoop, 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 took him up mm. the cliff and shoved him in the decompression chamber where he stayed for seven hours. And then I think it said he like over the next month, I think he had to go back in like multiple times into this decompression <sighs> chamber. So you know that's sort of the end of the story. They thought. Mm. Dave had said, you know, I don't want anyone coming down to try and recover me. Basically, they didn't want anyone else to die. Right. Um, The next day, they held this. I think it was the next day. I forgot to write down exactly when, but it was sometime after, the next day or a day or so later. The team went back down there, and they held like a little memorial service for Dave. They sang Amazing Grace. Mm. And then a few divers went into the water to try and like pull the equipment out. And what they discovered as they're pulling the line up and it was a little unclear to me whether he was attached to the line or whether they had free floated up, but basically Dave's body came up tethered to Dion Dreyer's body. So everyone says like, you know, he did what he said he was going to do. He recovered Dion's body. Yeah. And apparently Anne, his wife was like not happy that his body came back. And it's partly because of her religious beliefs where she was like, look, Dave already went to heaven. Now I have to deal with a body. And then she was like, I just assume he just stayed down there, but yeah, he didn't. But Dion Dreyer's parents got his body back. More importantly, the camera came back. Oh, well, I forgot about the camera. Mm-hmm. So they were actually, and you can watch them. Not necessarily. We're going to recommend this, but you can watch the footage online. <sighs> they were able to see essentially what happened. So, you know, you see he enters the water. It's very clear at the top. You see all the light. Mm-hmm. You see the you see the rocks. And then he goes into this cleft. And as he goes down, it's just darker and darker. And basically, you just see this line going into blackness in his hands, like moving along this line. And then, like, mm-hmm. the, the gas bottles kind of going up past him as he goes down. And he goes down. I mean, he shoots down. And apparently, he got down two minutes or about a minute and a half faster than he had thought he would. So he hit the bottom at about 11 minutes after entering the water. He, he immediately finds the line that he left before, makes it over to Dion's body, and he starts trying to pack it in this bag, this body bag. Mm-hmm. But the body turned out was not skeletonized. It had actually turned, and this is gross, but it had turned into kind of a, like a gelatinous material. Mm-hmm. And once it was freed of the mud, it just starts floating around. And you see it on the video, you know, like the torso kind of going in front of the camera. And he's trying to get it in this bag, but it's just not quiet. It's just flopping all over the place. And so at a certain point, he was like, okay, well, whatever. Well, he, as he's trying to get the thing in his bag, he unclipped his light and it's floating free. And he keeps, you know, wrestling with this body. And he, all you see is his hands, you know, moving. And then this body kind of moving in and out of the light. And then he realizes like he's working too hard. And the, one of the videos online uh, that is the dive, you essentially have Don Shirley narrating what's happening and he's like because at first he's like you know everything's going fine okay here he finds the line okay there's the body everything's going according to plan and he says but at this point like on the bottom he's working hard he's breathing hard it's like jogging yeah and then oh no here's the problem now you see the body floating around and and so he finally decides to abort it's clear he's trying to back away but mm-hmm. his camera got caught in the line So you see his hands, he's got a little pair of scissors and he keeps trying to cut the line. But at this point, the narcosis is setting in and you can tell his hands are shaking and he cannot get to the line and, you know, his hands are moving and then eventually they just stop moving. 
Oh. You just see him kind of, like he's kind of pulling on the line and you see it just kind of stops. And then the hands sort of drift out of frame. Ugh. And that's it. Essentially, by the time Don saw the light not moving, he was already dead. Oh, man. Yeah, so he could not have. There's nothing he could have done. So they brought the bodies out. I think Dion was buried. You know, mm-hmm. his family was able to hold a funeral. Dave was cremated. His ashes were spread in South Africa. Mm-hmm. A year or so later, Anne and I think his daughter came and visited Don Shirley and his wife and actually gave Don Dave's gear Ugh. because like, she was like, I have no use for this. And like, yeah. and so he says, like, when I go diving with this gear, it's like Dave is with me. Ugh. I don't I don't know where if you watch the Dave Not Coming Back documentary, mm-hmm. Don is like he's an older man now, you know, because this just came out in 2020. I think he's still diving, but I don't think he's doing these extreme dives anymore. And I think and it did say he did have some permanent damage from really? having the bins. Yeah. Okay. Um, but he's still alive. He's still out there. I think he's still running his diving school. And yeah, there you go. That is the story of Dave Shaw's final dive. Ugh. Yeah. And when did that happen? This was 2000. This would be very beginning of 2005, I believe. Ugh. So, yeah. Gosh, it, that's just like a tragedy all across the board. Yeah, it really is. And it's like, like I discovered, like it's a typical me. Like I just started watching videos probably 10 or more years ago. I started watching YouTube videos of um, people dying in what's called i think it's either called the black hole or the blue hole it's off the coast of egypt and it's supposed to be the most dangerous diving spot in the world Mm. it's it's a um it's another sinkhole but it's out to sea yeah and there was a video of some i think russian diver and he had like a gopro camera and he sank to the bottom and he ended up dying and then that just led to like one video after another which is what i do and then yeah then i found the video of don shirley narrating Dave going down and that kind of led opened the door to the rabbit hole where I watched all the documentaries and stuff. And yeah, it's, I mean, the thing is like when you see him interviewed, like you can't help but like the guy. Yeah. He's, you know, and you can tell like when he's talking to his team where he's like the most important person on the dive is you like, don't come after me take care of yourself. Like he's deadly serious. He knew the risks. He wasn't being cavalier about it. But, like, apparently at one point, as he's planning the dive to go retrieve the body, someone's like, you know, that's a really nice thing to do for the family. And he kind of winked at the guy and said, you know, we're doing it for the adventure. So it's like, there was that, too. Like, I think yeah. he did have the best of intentions, but there was. I mean, there's no way any, like, you know, what, like we said, whether it's Mount Everest or any of these extreme things, like, there's an element of hubris no matter what, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that story was rough. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. we're going to move on to something a bit more sunny. Um, <laughs> literally. Uh, so today I'm going to tell you how Josephine Baker and Coco Chanel are part of the reason why tanning became beautiful. Mm, okay. Sources for this are The Guardian, The Washington Post, Town and Country, Wikipedia, obviously, mm-hmm. The National Library of Medicine, and a couple of TikToks from someone named Charlotte Palermino. Mm-hmm. She is at Charlotte Parler on TikTok and Instagram, and that's Charlotte, P-A-R-L-E-R. I started following Charlotte during the pandemic because mm-hmm. I started getting really interested 
in skincare and like how skincare works and everything. And she has her own skincare company. It's called Dew and it's D-I-E-U-X. And there's like four products. There's like a serum, a moisturizer, an eye serum, and then these reusable silicone eye masks. Okay. But she does a lot of cool stuff talking about beauty trends and language that is used in the beauty industry and where stuff comes from. Scotty, I don't know if you have ever heard this, but there are a lot of people in quote unquote clean beauty who really demonize petrolatum, which is Vaseline, Mm. because they're like, oh, it comes from oil and blah, blah, blah. The thing is, is that like, yes, it does. But also the Native American, like the indigenous people in the Americas had discovered petrolatum and they Mm. were using it for forever before a dude came along and was like, this is actually like a really great humectant. And so Mm. I'm going to put it in a little tub and blah, blah, blah. So she has all of these like, she has a lot of really good information. Mm. This word is sort of like buzzwordy, but she, uh, she kind of does a lot of like debunking stuff mm-hmm. on beauty trends and all that kind of stuff. Okay. She's really great. And what I also like about her is that she's like, here are the, like, here are the studies that say this. <laughs> so you it's know? like, she's not just like spouting off. She's actually. No, no. She, and there's stuff that like people will bring up and she's like, mm, I don't know. Let me go look into that. And then okay. like four weeks later, she'll come back and she's like, here's all the information I was able to find on this. Cool. So. <laughs> Yeah. So there we go. So go check her out. Okay. I'm not going to get into the science of tanning Mm -hmm. because it has a lot to do with melanin cells and radiation and repair. And if you are absolutely interested in how and why skin tans and burns, you can Mm -hmm. go read the Wikipedia article if you're super interested in that process. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm not going to get into it. That's like, I decided not to get into like all the different ratios of the gas mixtures. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that it's like, I'm sure that somebody out there is interested in it. And go find that person. Yeah. Absolutely. Please go, go and and look at that on your own time. <laughs> okay. So prior to the 1920s throughout Western Europe and the U.S., tanned skin was seen as a sign of the lower class. Scotty, mm-hmm. do you have any guesses as to why that would be? People working outside, like working in the fields, that kind of thing. 100%. Yeah. It's like if you don't leave your house and just lay on your fainting couch all day. Right. You're like exactly. Yeah. yeah. That was true for like millennia. The only people who were tan were the ones who were spending a lot of time outside and that was like the laborer class. Right. Higher class folks spent their time indoors, like you just said. And while this was definitely how stuff was working in the U.S. and Western Europe, pale skin was and continues to be the beauty standard across many countries across the continent of Asia as well. So I talked a little bit in my deadly fashion story that's in our Humbug Billy episode, Mm, uh, but porcelain skin was so desired that people, mostly women, went to extraordinary and dangerous lengths to achieve that look. They used toxic whiteners, lead-filled makeup, skin bleachers, all of that kind of stuff. Lead-filled makeup, it just makes me... Yeah. Yeah. And like... I mean, you know, it had to be like paint, right? Like, you yeah. know, it had to be like thick. Yeah. I should also add that this trend of paleness dates back to ancient Greek and Roman times. Mm-hmm. So, I mean. This is not new. Not new. The plays of William Shakespeare often described pale skin as beautiful and sun-darkened skin as undesirable. Mm-hmm. Two examples in Much Ado, uh, Beatrice says, I'm sunburnt. I may sit in a corner and cry hi-ho for a husband. Mm. 
similarly in Midsummer, which I just did, when Lysander is put under a love spell and is, you know, quote unquote, no longer in love with Hermia, he insults her by calling her an Ethiop and a Tawny Tartar. Mm-hmm. Yep. I remember those lines. From- yes, that you were running with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about beauty standards and the damage that they do. Beauty standards do a lot of damage because they are unattainable, and that is by design. Beauty Mm -hmm. is not meant to be widely available to the masses. And the powers that be that decide what is and isn't beautiful are usually those in power, and that historically has been white men. And Mm -hmm. when you decide that something unattainable is the beauty standard, you create a demand for that and thereby a market Mm -hmm. for that look. So the inevitable conclusion of this is a population – sorry, the inevitable conclusion of this is products and or procedures that aren't safe to use – And a huge swath of the population who are so desperate to meet this beauty standard, who don't have the money to pay for the real and pricey options. And so they knowingly or unknowingly put themselves at risk buying subpar products or paying for back alley procedures Mm -hmm. just to have a chance to be beautiful. And this goes from everything from like, you know, skin bleachers to people who are going to go get plastic surgery and like injections and stuff in someone's home. Right. Yeah. This is people who are, and I remember reading a story about a woman who had gone to see, it was this kind of thing, like a guy who was like, yeah, 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 I can totally do this for you, but we're not going to do it in the office. Like you're going to come to my home and that way I can give it to you for like wholesale, already whatever. Already a red flag. Already a red flag. And I think she wanted breast implants and clearly everything went wrong. Come to and when my they, home for the breast implants? Yeah. And when they went in there, he had put, I think like carpet foam in there people have been injected with like industrial grade silicone Mm. like that's the kind of stuff that you find to like caulk your bathtub and stuff like just not designed to go in the human body yeah 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 so unreachable beauty standards are that way by design and that's Mm -hmm. also why they are always changing it keeps women and girls although there are absolutely beauty standards for men and boys and everybody across you know the gender spectrum but for the most part it is focused on women and girls Mm -hmm. but it keeps them buying products and procedures in an effort to reach that unattainable and ever-evolving beauty standard beauty in quotes Mm -hmm. is meant to be something that is for the quote-unquote lucky few Mm -hmm. and we are truly meant to kill ourselves finding it a perfect example of this is to get a little biological um (laughs) the vagina is a self-cleaning organism well it's It's, yeah it's a yeah yeah it's It's not like an alien that's it's a I meant organ, not organ. Yes. It's a self-cleaning system, right? Yeah. It has its own thing. It does it doesn't like if you just kind of leave it alone and do let it do what it does. Mm-hmm. Of course, having said that, everybody has their own unique scent. And there are absolutely times when anybody can smell a little bit, you know, riper, a little bit muskier mm-hmm. than they do at other times during the day. But for the most part, the vagina, leave it alone and it does its thing. There are 
countless Mm -hmm. vaginal washes that have been designed for women to feel like clean and fresh down there because we have been told that we like if if you have a vagina it's not allowed to have any kind of odor Mm -hmm. and if it does have an odor it should be a fragrance an artificial one and not just like you know the smell of your own body Mm -hmm. didn't we talk on here about how bad douching is for you I don't know if we talked on here, but I know we have talked talked about about it. it. Yeah, Yeah, it's very, it's very bad for you. Mm -hmm. I don't care what anybody says. It's similarly to how people are like, oh, colonics and stuff. And it's like, that is something that is, you know, Mm -hmm. like millions of years of evolution (laughs) have led us to this thing that it's like, it works the way that it works. Right. Well, and I'm sorry, like any dude who's out there being like complaining about a woman's smelly vagina, I'm like... I can guarantee he's got a musty dick. Like, Well, and this is the funny thing, right? To go along with that. It is now somewhat commonly known that there is a large number of men in the world who do not clean their own ass. Mm-hmm. And whether that means wiping or cleaning it in the shower or mm-hmm. whatever, this is all disgusting and I'm sorry, but there is a less than zero number <laughs> Of the population of men who don't know how to wash their own butts or don't do it because they think it's like gay. I was going to say, like, I can see a certain number of men being like, if I touch my butthole with a rag, that means I'm gay. Yeah. Okay. Like have a smelly ass then like do your thing. Right. But nowhere, nowhere ever, nowhere in any store will you find a men's genital wash. You won't find a men's butt wash. There's soap. I will say. There is, um, and I do not know the company, and obviously we're not getting the fucking kickbacks anyway, so fuck them. But, like, there is, I keep seeing some Instagram ad for some, it's like manly soap. And Uh and they specifically talk about, like, you ought to, like, wash your butt with this. So I I think think that, like, and I think the woman who, like, created the company or is, like, Mm -hmm. narrating the ad is, like, one of the owners of the company. And I feel like it's, like, at a certain point, women are just like, dudes, no. Right. Like. Here's the thing to wipe your ass with, like go do Right. It. But even with that still, there isn't a specifically, because that's the other thing too, is that should you choose to, some people can't because of skin sensitivities and stuff. Mm-hmm. Some people can't wash their vaginas with soap and with mm-hmm. soap. So they just have to kind of get in there with like water and maybe a rag and stuff or right. whatever. But like soap will do it. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason for there to be a targeted vaginal wash Mm-hmm. <laughs> a less than zero amount of percent of the population of men don't know or don't care to wash their own asses and there is nothing marketed to them to do so i've never seen i've never seen anything marketed to washing your own dick like yeah i think there's just an assumption like i don't know hit it with some fucking soap and you're good the closest you can get to it is like gold bond but that's really about preventing like athlete's foot yeah i was gonna say that's not washing it that's like an anti-fungal mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah which which i mean if you don't wash thing. it then you know all sorts of things yeah exactly <laughs> okay <laughs> anyway, this is a little bit so, of a tangent <laughs> yeah a little bit of a tangent but that's just so that you and the listeners can understand what we're talking about when we're talking about beauty standards mm-hmm. i think sometimes yeah. people there's a lot of I think that there can be some opinions out there about that beauty standards are something that we impose on ourselves as women. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's like internalized misogyny that does that. So you'll mm-hmm. absolutely have women being like, well, I douche and I use a vaginal wash. And 
you know, sure. I shave every errant hair on my body and whatever the hell. But that's that's really about, like I said, they, the proverbial mm-hmm. the, the they, who are usually white men, deciding that this is how women should look. Okay, right. so back to tanning. So for millennia, we have people trying to stay as pale as possible. Mm-hmm. And women's fashion directly reflects this. We have long sleeves, long dresses, sunbonnets, large hats, mm-hmm. parasols, etc. And all of that like lead paint, arsenic makeup that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. This trend continues through the end of the Victorian period. Mm-hmm. And then we get the Industrial Revolution. Right. It is insane how much of a cultural domino the industrial revolution was Mm -hmm. like it is such a clear line of demarcation for so many things from like how we live in a home to like how we eat our food to how we like yeah it's insane okay so anyways industrial revolution comes along and suddenly the working class isn't outdoors anymore they're inside they're working in factories and Mm -hmm. mines and that kind of stuff So not only are people working indoors, they're living in cramped dwellings and leisure time is being taken inside to avoid smog and pollution. Yeah, like I don't feel like I would want have wanted to live in like Pittsburgh at that time when it was like like the big London or London. You know what I mean? When it's just like gray. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So all of that indoor time turns out to be like really, really bad for the human body. Mm -hmm. So after like after everybody sort of moves indoors, we see a big spike of children in industrial cities getting rickets. Hmm. Do you know what rickets is? I've heard of it, but I no, I don't know what it is. Right. So it is a condition that results in soft bones. Ooh. Yeah. So it's I think adults can get it, but children are usually the population that gets it okay. and that's important because their bones are growing and stuff so you'll yeah, see yeah you'll see like you know you were seeing a lot of kids with like bow legs and mm. uh, i think it was called like pseudo fractures any way that you slice it soft bones doesn't no we don't sound those. like a like a great thing no rickets is caused by an extreme vitamin d deficiency mm. and the best way for a body to produce vitamin d is sun exposure right 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 okay interestingly enough both before and after this time the area of the world that had the highest incidences of rickets was the middle east hmm. and that is because culturally women are covered Mm. and so breastfeeding mothers are giving their children vitamin d deficient milk that's interesting yeah because you wouldn't necessarily think because there's so much sun middle east there's so much sun but yeah if you're covered head to toe yep Yeah. yeah so from 1890 until the 1920s there's all of this work being done a guy won the nobel peace prize for his work on like light therapy Mm-hmm. And they start to see that like sunlight is super crucial for good bone development in kids, that it cures rickets and mm-hmm. another thing called lupus vulgaris, which mm. I think is like, they're like sores. They're like sort of like open sores that well, come at. I mean, I know lupus is like an autoimmune disease and it's real, yeah. real gnarly. Yeah. yeah. So it's this, I guess it's this particular like strain of it. And it has, it. Mm. Ca- I think 
the pictures that I saw were like drawings. They weren't photographs, mm. but it looked like it was like rusty sores type of stuff. Mm-hmm. At any rate, they were like, sunlight is good for all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like across the board. And to this day, like, I think sunlight is good for like eczema, Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of stuff. I think that's true. So they're starting to find all of this stuff out. And suddenly heliotherapy, helio meaning sun, Mm. starts being recommended as a health practice. Okay. And because it's good for you, sunbathing starts being referred to as a desirable activity for the leisured class, right? Mm -hmm. So we have something that it's like, hey, this is something that makes you healthy. And then the leisured class is like, oh, well, cool, then I'll get a lot of that because Mm -hmm. I'm able to, because I can, you know, I have spending time at the beach and outdoors in the country is available to me right? because I don't work a fucking factory (laughs) at the age of nine. Right. So that's sort of where we're at. And then Coco Chanel gets a sunburn. Mm. Okay. So Coco Chanel. Coco Chanel was born in 1883 in France. Her mother was a laundress and her father was an inter an <laughs> itinerant iterant street vendor. Itinerant, I think. Thank you. He didn't do a lot of work, basically, is what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, itinerant sort of suggests that. <laughs> so her mother died when she was 11, and her dad was like, I can't, I can't. But I also think they had like eight kids. Mm. They had a lot of kids. And the dad was like, I can't, I can't deal with this, and mm. sent all of the girls to an orphanage in a convent. And it was in that, yeah, as you do, it was in that orphanage where Coco learned to sew. She would go on to found the Chanel brand and her clothing popularized a casual sporty look that deviated from the corseted silhouette that dominated women's fashion Mm -hmm. up to that point. So was she sort of part of the, like, what was leading to, like, the flapper era? Is it, like, kind of related to that? Yeah, it's, like, around this time. Okay. She was also a fucking Nazi. So, like, Mm -hmm. let's just have that said. Yeah. I mean, like, sort of everyone in Europe was at some point. Yeah. Well, not everybody. And I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But before that. In the 1920s, she went on a little trip to the French Riviera, Mm. and she overindulged with the sunbathing. Mm -hmm. She was photographed coming off of the yacht, bronzed to perfection, Mm. and that photo, which was then published in newspapers and stuff, essentially made tanning go viral. Mm. It is a black and white photograph, and you can still tell that she's tan. So, you know, she's like posing on the steps, you know, of like, I don't know, the dock house or whatever it was that she got off of this yacht and she's like mm. you know wearing her sort of like signature style and like yeah you can tell that she's like bronzed mm-hmm. charlotte palermino has an excellent four-part video series on this on tiktok if you want like a sort of super condensed version of this story mm-hmm. there was a comment on there so she makes four videos and there's a lot of people that are like this could have been one video and it's like what is wrong <laughs> with people But there was one commenter who was like, oh, my God, she was like a nobody when this happened. This is such a reach. Just to make it clear, again, we're talking about the 1920s. Coco Chanel's hat designs became widely popular in 1912 when a famous actress wore them on stage. She opened her own clothing boutique in 1913. She opened a second location in 1915. And by 1919, she was registered as a couturier and had mm. an established Maison de Couture in Paris. 
So this person, so, like this commenter, can eat a dick. Basically. Well, and also it was just like clearly you don't know your history. Like yeah. she was photographed getting off of a yacht, and that picture ended up in the newspapers. Yeah, like if she was nobody, you know, would have. Yeah, no this one would have bothered taking a picture. She's right, not the first and, person who ever had a sunburn. No. And like, this is very clearly like a sort of paparazzi shot. You know what I mean? There are Mm -hmm. other pictures of her on the yacht from this trip where she is also, but this is, and I'll post it in the social media. Mm -hmm. She's, it is very clearly a paparazzi shot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyways, she hops off of this yacht looking golden brown, like I said, evident, even in this black and white pic. And everyone was like, oh my God, I have got to look like that. Mm -hmm. Tan skin was... Like I said, somewhat more accessible to the rich folks, but for the masses, still stuck a long trip on a yacht. Yeah. yeah, you know, that's out of reach. Now, we have this picture of Coco Chanel that appears in the papers, but she isn't the only one who influences this desire for like bronzed caramel skin. Mm-hmm. Enter Josephine Baker, stage right. Okay. Frida okay. Josephine Baker, she was born in 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri. Right. Josephine's whole story is absolutely an episode in and of itself yeah, uh, they've made a couple like movies and miniseries about her right yeah and i cannot give her the coverage that she deserves sure. right now but just to give you an idea of how she started she her grandparents were i believe her grandparents were freed slaves she dropped out of school at 12 she married for the first time at 13 mm. she married again at 15 mm. she danced on street corners and she would go on to become the first black woman to star in a major motion picture. Mm -hmm. She headlined reviews at the Folies Bergerere in Paris. She became an icon of the jazz age in the Roaring Twenties. She refused to perform for segregated audiences in Mm. the U.S. She aided French resistance during World War II. Fucking right. Mm -hmm. And she is noted for her contributions to the civil rights movement. She was the only woman who was invited to speak at the March on Washington. Mm. After Martin Luther King was assassinated, Coretta King invited her to like officially become part of the civil rights movement. Mm. And Josephine Baker was like, I am so honored and I am terrified for my children. And so for that reason, I'm going to say no. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. On November 30th, 2021, she was officially inducted into the Pantheon in Paris. Um, She was the first black woman to receive one of the highest honors in France um, in them doing that. Mm. I didn't know this. The Pantheon in France, because there's the Pantheon in Rome, right? But Mm. then there's the Pantheon in France. And it is a civic building that serves as a repository for the remains of great French citizens. Voltaire, Victor Hugo, Emile Zola, Marie Curie, and now Josephine Baker mm. are all laying in rest there. Oh wow! Actually, I think Josephine Baker's actual grave is in a different cemetery, but they have like a like, like a, a in the crypt memorial for, her. for her, right? yeah. So Josephine Baker's like doing all this stuff. She like moves to New York. When she was 15, she is, uh, you know, a chorus dancer in Broadway shows at this time. She's doing all this stuff, but Mm -hmm. she's, you know, she starts traveling and touring and she's like performing in hotels that she can't stay at. So she's sort of like, "Mm, I'm out. And in 1925, she set sail to Paris. Okay. She became an immediate sensation. She was real. She was a real sexy lady. (laughs) She she danced. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She was like, and her dancing was like very erotic um Mm -hmm. she is 
if if you don't know anything about Josephine Baker, you might know that she was somebody who danced in a banana skirt. That plays into like a whole lot of tropes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I won't be posting that picture of her on social media. I'll find another picture of her looking beautiful. But regardless, Parisians idolized her for her quote unquote caramel skin. Mm. The fact that Baker became a beauty standard at a time when France was a violent colonial power and was still exhibiting colonized populations in their human zoos is a pretty supreme feat of pretzel logic but but that's for another episode yeah (laughs) okay so we get coco chanel coming back with her tan josephine baker with her beautiful bronze skin Mm -hmm. and everybody's like oh my god that like this is it's this is this is so chic like i can't i can't even In addition to that, you have the sun being seen as good for your health Mm -hmm. and tan skin becomes like fashionable and healthy and looks rich. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's just money, luxury. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in 1927, there's a designer named Jean Pateau and he realized that he could cash in on the tanning trend and he released the first suntan oil and that was Wille de Chaldi and it was made with the most expensive oils and of scented course. with of clearly uh and scented with narcissus orange flower and amber so again just like luxury 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 right it advertised that it would prevent sunburn <laughs> while softening and tanning the skin okay it's an oil we're going to okay just, I was going to say like I'm yep I'm skeptical, but continue. Yes. Josephine Baker also released a tanning oil called Baker Oil, which promised Mm. to brown your skin in the style of Josephine Baker. Mm. It is. I hope that she had like, I hope, you know, that like she had the rights to this and all of that stuff. It is a bit of genius to be a black woman Mm -hmm. in a white supremacist world and to see all of these white people being like, oh, your skin, your skin, and to be like, I'm going to capitalize on this. Yeah, I mean, it feels I'm going to make a product and I'm going to sell it to white women and say, if you buy this, Mm -hmm. you can look like me. Like, it feels a little borderline blackfacey, but it's a black woman doing it, like selling it. And the thing is, is that, so let's be very clear here. This is not a makeup that tints you. Mm -hmm. It is simply... Yep, it's so that you can get a tan. Okay, I see. And like the bottles, like she's on the cover, like, you know, it's like a very (laughs) old timey looking fucking like radium girls looking bottle and she's like on it looking gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Okay. To highlight how quickly the trend changed from pale to bronze skin, a study done by the National Library of Medicine said that they looked at women's fashion magazines from 1920, 1927, 1928, and 1929. From 1920 to 1927, pale skin was the beauty standard. Mm -hmm. And magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar were full of ads for skin whitening makeups, powders, lotions, creams. Come 1928, the magazines reflect a Clear shift in attitude with Harper's Bazaar publishing an article called Shall We Gild the Lily? There is a technique to a good tan, whether by fair means or fake. Hmm. And Vogue published an article called Back to Sunburn with the Mode. And this was a hmm. four page spread that covered fashion, makeup, and even accessories intended to show off your tan. This is from the Vogue article. It said, from a chic note, sunburn became a trend, then an established fashion, and now the entire feminine world is sunburn conscious. It's interesting 
because at this time they're talking about a sunburn like a tan. Mm-hmm. Like they're not talking about a sunburn as like a red, like I'm in pain. Right. You know, they're talking about it as a tan. Ads for swimwear. This was actually, I thought, really interesting. Ads for swimwear went from showing bathing beauties under umbrellas and hats and shawls to them being out in the sun with no protection. Mm -hmm. And there isn't, what's interesting about that is that it's not like throw away your umbrellas. It's just, it was advertisements for swimsuits and like 1927, everybody's covered 1928. They're out in the sun. It's crazy that it was like in one year. In one year. Yeah. Yeah. So tanning is off to the races. As the 1930s approach, sunlight therapy is recommended for everything from fatigue to tuberculosis, and cosmetic and skincare companies are releasing products, lotions, and oils and stuff like that targeted to those wanting to get a quote-unquote safe tan. Mm -hmm. Come 1940... Not only is tanning absolutely in vogue, swimsuits also start getting much smaller. So, Scotty, I'm going to send you two pictures, right. and you're going to tell me, you're going to tell our lovely audience what, I'm what, what you're looking at. Okay. So, here is the first. Okay. So, it's a group of women. They're wearing uh, swimsuits. Mm-hmm. But they're like they look kind of like little mini dresses or like like a tank top with skirts kind of look. Uh-huh. Like they still go to sort of mid thigh, and then they all have like knee black knee socks or yes. mostly black knee. One woman's got like total like pantyhose or yeah. black leggings. So I mean that doesn't look super comfortable at the right. So that is a picture of what swimsuits looked like when Coco Chanel got off of her yacht. Okay. Okay. Here's the second picture. And again, please describe for our audiences. It's it's a bikini. Yeah. This <laughs> is like, like a, a nice looking young woman in a bikini leaning on mm-hmm. a railing, being very bikini. It's not like a string bikini like they would become later, but um, it's pretty revealing. Right. Okay. So, like mm-hmm. I said... First is what bathing suits looked like around the time that Coco Chanel was on her yacht mm-hmm. and Josephine Baker was dancing in Paris. That second picture is like the actual first bikini. Okay. Yeah. And uh, when was that? Okay. So interesting story about this. The designer of this garment, his name was Louis Riard, mm-hmm. and he was a French mechanical engineer, but at the time he was running his mother's lingerie business. He noticed women on the beaches of Saint-Tropez rolling up the edges of their swimsuits so mm. they'd get a better tan mm-hmm. and was like, huh, a smaller swimsuit would allow for more tan yeah. skin. One plus so, one equals two. One plus one equals two. And so he created this string bikini. This mm-hmm. is the first string bikini. I mean, I guess which, it is because it's strings on the sides. It's just mm-hmm. the front part's still fairly covered. It's still, you know, it's still a pretty big. I guess not you a know, thong. New York pizza slice. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's not fabric. a thong. It's not quite a thong, but yeah. We don't think. We can't see the back, so we don't know. That's true. That's a good point. Okay. So he makes this string bikini, which exposed the navel for the first time. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, there were two-piece swimsuits, but it was a little strip of skin that you would see like at the bottom of the ribs. The navel mm-hmm. was not yeah, shown. And that would be a weird tan. Mm-hmm. And the bottoms usually were uh, sort of like what we would consider hot pants now. So they well, okay. like, you know, high-waisted covered the navel, went all the way down to 
uh, like essentially the top of the thighs. Okay. So yeah, you'd have essentially like a boy's tan yeah. in those. So he creates this bikini, exposes the navel. Everybody's like, oh my God. In looking for a model to photograph his new creation, none of the reputable models would do it. They were like, <laughs> absolutely not. So he got who you see in that picture is 19 year old nude dancer, Micheline Bernardini. Okay. And she was like, yeah, I'll do it. This is more clothes than I usually wear. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. He introduced the design to the media and the public on July 5th, 1946 at a public pool in Paris, just five days after the first test of a nuclear device over the bikini atoll. I was wondering where the name was connected. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also at this time, like I mentioned in another episode, which I forgot to write down the name of, but t-shirts are starting to become popular Mm -hmm. as are pools, right? Right. So you don't have to go to the ocean or the, or a lake to be in the water. You can go into the water in people's homes, in cities and whatever. Mm -hmm. So this means that men start getting in on the tanning game as well. Okay. Copper tone gets invented in the 1940s, but it starts to get really popular in the 1950s. The original lotion was invented to darken tans, not prevent them. Mm. That's also when we get the copper tone girl. She's a little blonde girl right. and the dog is pulling down her bathing suit and you can see that she, like, she's got a little white butt. Yeah. You know, okay. she got a little copper tone tan. <laughs> yeah. Like questionable imagery. Yeah. Yeah. So Coppertone's early slogan was tan, don't burn. To what you just said, the Coppertone girl was removed from branding in 2019. And I think prior to that, the dog was like biting at her swimsuit, but wasn't pulling it down. Mm-hmm. Like, I think somebody was like, isn't that right? They were showing a little girl's butt. On the yeah. T- you know? Yeah. So she looked like that. But she recently returned to the packaging Although with a much more appropriate look, she is no longer sporting tan lines. Like now she's usually like, she's not a color illustration. She's like a single color line drawing. Okay. And she's either in a full bathing suit or shorts. And they're, the dog is just like, kind of like wee behind her, Mm -hmm. like jumping up and like, you know, they're playing. So it's like nodding at the history, but also like not being creepers anymore yeah yeah Yeah. precisely okay by the 1950s people get absolutely like unhinged in their pursuit (laughs) of the perfect tan this is when we start to see people slathering themselves in baby oil and using Mm. those silver foil reflectors to just like really Mm -hmm. get nice get those rays just in nice and crispy like a roast chicken (laughs) the first self tanner also comes out in 1950 it was called man tan (laughs) <laughs> and it it absolutely turned people orange. Mm. Prior to that, there was makeup that could give you the appearance of a tan, but man tan contained sugarcane derived DHA, which actually causes it causes a browning reaction with the amino acids on the skin's surface. So self tanners, they're making them with some pigment now, which helps you sort of like, you know, in the application of it, Mm -hmm. but essentially what's happening to your skin when you put on self tanner is like what happens to an apple when you cut it and you leave it out. Mm. It's a Maillard's reaction, I think is the name of Mm. that specific like chemical reaction, but that's essentially all that's happening. Mm -hmm. It's also why fake tans last, you know, like maybe about a week. It's because 
the top layer. It's only the top layer of your skin. Right, and as you're shedding skin cells, it's going to, yeah. Yeah, they're, I mean, I saw stuff in here, which is just like amazing what the body can do, that your top layer of skin regenerates every like seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Like I said, it did turn a lot of people orange. <laughs> I was going to say, is this what Trump is using to this day? And I mean, and that's the thing is that like a, a lot of self tanners do still yeah. turn people orange. I mean, what I love about his look, he's really pioneered it is like actually where you actually see the outline of the goggles still around his. Eye. And that's the thing that's interesting because you don't wear goggles when you apply self tanner. I mean, he does clearly. Not even like in the <laughs> where you wear the goggles is in a tanning Booth. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think he's probably going. He's he's probably got some fucking like apparatus in his golden toilet bathroom. Maybe. That, yeah. But okay, so I'm gonna get to that because there is a difference in all of these things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in 1960, Coppertone introduces Quick Tan, and that is their mass-produced sunless tanning lotion. Mm -hmm. In 1963, makeup artists slather Max Factor liquid bronzer all over Elizabeth Taylor to darken her skin for Cleopatra. Now, bronzer mm. is a makeup designed to give you a temporary sun-kissed look. Right. But it's makeup, it washes off. But yeah, they covered her in the dance. <laughs> In 1971, Malibu Barbie is introduced, and right. she comes with her very own little bottle of suntan lotion. Mm, yeah. However, what we're starting to see here in 50 years, right, from like the 1920s of Coco Chanel and Josephine Baker making tan fashion, making like getting being tan fashionable to the 1970s, by the 19, like 50 years of people tanning, mm -hmm. skin cancer starts to skyrocket. I was going to say at some point. Yeah, because at the, remember, they're not using anything. They're mm -hmm. not using any kind of protection. Everybody's got as much skin exposed as they possibly can. They're putting stuff on to damage the skin further, mm -hmm. which is all, that's all, a, that's all a tan is, is mm -hmm. your skin being damaged. So in 1978, sunscreen with an SPF 15 rating appears on the market. That late. 70, yeah, like, I think somewhere in the late 1960s, Coppertone was like, "Here's an SPF," but it like the FDA wasn't was like, "We haven't regulated anything." Yeah, we don't about know this what this yet. is. Yeah, yeah. That same year, though, tanning beds come on the scene. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tanning beds were actually introduced in the 1960s, but they really took off in the 1970s, especially and continually in Scandinavia. I mean, they probably, well, particularly like wintertime, they have no sun. So what else? Yeah. But like you can do light therapy without it being like tanning. Right. You know what I mean? But apparently they're like, we're blonde. Wouldn't we look so beautiful with a tan? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's do this. Well, I mean, I feel like I've seen pictures of Nico from the Velvet Underground where she was like blonde skinned. I think she was German, but like, um, I know I've seen pictures of her with like a deep tan. So, yeah, the women from ABBA, mm -hmm. deeply tanned. Um, I mean, literally every like fucking telling on myself here, but like my dad had a pile of old Playboy magazines in the basement uh, that I used to go look through. They're all from the 60s and 70s. And it was like yeah. everyone was tanned. Like, yeah. Super deep tan. Did they have tan lines or were they tan all over? Mm -hmm. 
a lot of them had tan lines. It seemed like tan lines was considered like there's a period where that was like a look, I think. It is. I don't think it's a period. I think it's a it's a specific population, specific like percent of the population mm-hmm. of I would be very interested to know what like anybody outside of the, you know, right. outside of dudes thinks about tan lines. But there is a very specific percentage of the population that is mm-hmm. like, I fucking love tan lines. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I, I find tan lines pretty sexy. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, I'm not here to yuck anybody's yum. Okay. <laughs> so. Thank you. So we've got tanning beds becoming like super popular, mm-hmm. especially in Scandinavia. And meanwhile, concurrently, we have skin whitening exploding in Asian countries. Mm. So both of these, mm-hmm, both of these things are creating multi-billion-dollar industries. Yeah, I ordered a Korean sunscreen mm-hmm. um, that Charlotte had uh, recommended. There's a lot of stuff about sunscreens and there's a lot of stuff about like, oh, the chemicals and they're cancerous and all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And having said that, there are cosmetic companies in Asia, Korea specifically, and in the EU that use filters that are not FDA approved. Mm -hmm. And like, I I don't know why they're not FDA approved. Like they're safe. They work. Mm -hmm. They're effective. The FDA is just like, no, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't know why they're not, they're not yeah. doing it, but I had ordered this Korean sunscreen and it came to me and as a free gift, they gave me a skin whitening cream. Mm. Which was not what you were asking for. I was like, oh, this is so like, this is so messed up. Mm. Okay. I'm just not going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think when tanning beds hit the scene, they were originally advertised as being like totally safe and good for you. Of course, mm. we now know that that is not true. I think I saw something that like 10 minutes in a tanning bed is equal to like a couple of hours in the sun. Mm. That like, wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's a big... Yeah. They're ju- oh, they're like so bad for you. Oven, basically. They're, yeah, they're so bad. They're so bad for you. <laughs> Full um, disclosure, <laughs> my uh, my cousin, who I'm pretty sure does not listen to this, mm-hmm. um, but she owns a tanning salon in North Carolina. They're one of the Carolinas. Yeah. Um, I will say that most tanning salons still advertise tanning beds as completely safe. Mm-hmm. I know this because, at least here in Albuquerque, Tanning salons are where you can get like spray tans, like mystic tans and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And they really, really push the tanning beds. And if Mm. you're like, I want to get a spray tan, they're sort of like (laughs) rolling their eyes at you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just so weird. So the 80s, 90s and aughts start to see tanning reaching like an apex, right? Tanning goes from something that like, you know, you're like, oh, yes, I'm coming back from a vacation sort of sun kissed and stuff to like year round tans. This is when we have people like George Hamilton, mm -hmm. who's just like endlessly tan. Italian fashion designer Valentino there for a while was like tan. Snooki from Jersey Shore, Mm -hmm. Paris Hilton, all of them were like too, too, too tan. Every picture you've ever seen of anyone in like Studio 54 it's just like people like like cooked to a crisp. You know? But we're talking later. We're talking 80s, 90s, and aughts. Mm-hmm. And I, I have Studio a question 50- about the 90s, but continue. You're thinking your 90s, which is like, yeah. you know, sort of more grunge and stuff. Well, that's that's what I was gonna ask. Was was that because it did seem like 
like if I think back on like pop culture, it was like the eighties and like the apex to me, because by the nineties, it did seem like uh pop culture kind of moved a little bit away from it, but maybe you're right. Maybe that was like a specific niche of pop culture. That I right. So what about. you need to think of in terms of like the nineties is older celebrities, whereas mm. the aughts tanning really started to hit the younger celebrities. Okay. So the aughts is Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, you're right. They, that they were, kind of stuff. They were super baked. Yeah. The 80s and 90s is George Hamilton. It's Valentino. It's that kind of stuff. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because it seemed like the 90s, at least like our age, was not tanning as much. So there was like no, we were we were inside in our coffee shops, like smoking, everyone was, smoking everyone our was trying cigarettes. to be like Kurt Cobain or Daria. Yeah, we wanted to stay inside and like feel our feelings. Um, <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. (laughs) Okay, so from what I could figure out about this, George Hamilton was, in fact, doing his the old-fashioned way. Mm -hmm. He was laying out in the sun. To this day, he's like, I I get sun every day. Mm -hmm. I look absolutely – he is, I believe so. Oh, wow. Yeah, and is like, I've never worried about getting sun a day in my life. I have no idea if Valentino's, I mean, he's fucking Valentino. I would bet his is a real tan, but maybe it was enhanced with some fake tanner. Mm-hmm. Snooki and Paris Hilton were using tanning beds or self tanners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because at this time, especially by the aughts, we are sh- like, it's really starting to get into the water that tanning is very bad for your skin. Mm-hmm. And that like, that's really when we start to see the rise of cosmetics with SPF and daily moisturizers with SPF and all of yeah. that stuff. The tan bubble, oddly enough, kind of burst when Charlize Theron showed up at the 2004 Academy Awards looking kind of like a beautiful apricot. Do you remember this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do remember that. Like she is a beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. Nothing taking away from that. I remember it was just like, everyone was like trying to adjust their TV set because it looked wrong. Yeah. And I think in, I think in reality she had, she was probably like a little too tan. And I think her dress and her hair and makeup kind of accentuated it. Yeah, because she had, like, white blonde, like, platinum hair. I kind of remember this, yeah. And then, like, a very, like, bronzy, smoky eye. I think she was wearing, like, a nude lip. And I think, like, a gold dress. So it was just, like, she was, like, almost monochromatic. I was going to say, I remember the image and and everyone talking about it. And I, you know, it's not the type of thing I ever paid that much attention to. But I kind of remember even me thinking, like, that just looks odd like mm-hmm. nothing like the colors and the tones are not balanced it's all like you said it's just kind of this one monochromatic yeah it was it was it was a little unfortunate yeah. and that's really funny because like she sort of was the apex of it after that point everybody starts to back off of the self maybe that's yeah. and and we'll get to this in a sec okay additionally there is something <laughs> called tanorexia, hmm. which I think sort of started as like a portmanteau, right? Of just like, sure. oh yeah, I'm like a tanorexic. Okay. So tanorexia is a physical or psychological dependence on tanning. It hmm. has like developed, like I said, I think people sort of were like, oh yeah, I'm tanorexic. But it like many people now believe tanorexia to be a behavioral addiction that hmm. may even be an indication of body dysmorphic disorder. I was going to say that that would actually make sense. Yeah, because the the thing about it is, is that when you talk to these people, you know, there are people who like they are in tanning beds 
every day. Mm -hmm. And the Guardian article was talking specifically about how how crazy of a trend tanning is in in the UK and like in all of its forms. And I don't know if you remember watching Love Island last year, Mm -hmm. how the girls like (laughs) were, you know, slathering themselves in sunless in like self tanner to get like black. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of people who are, are are still doing that, but it's like there was somebody that they interviewed and this person was going to like, they were going to tanning beds and they were like, I've tried to stop. And within three days, I think I look sick. And like, mm. there's the color of their skin has not diminished. It's absolutely like a psychological, they right. are not seeing themselves as they actually appear. Right. Okay. So right now, pale skin is somewhat back in Mm-hmm. But let's be clear about this. It is not because people think that tan skin is ugly, but rather that we know how bad tanning is for you. Mm-hmm. It can cause premature aging. It can even lead to skin cancer, which can absolutely be de- uh, deadly or disfiguring. Mm-hmm. Pale skin is now the sign of someone who protects themselves from aging. And as we all know, aging is the worst thing a person can do, especially if yeah. you are a woman. No. Yeah. Just stop the clock. Yeah, just stop the clock. And you'll see Nicole Kidman and Anne Hathaway. They're two really big, like very pale, very fair skinned Mm -hmm. women who are clearly doing a lot to not get any kind of sun damage. Mm-hmm. Today's self-tanners are a multi-million dollar industry and the options for sunless tanning ranges from stuff you can buy at the drugstore like Jergens and Coppertone to high-end brands like Dior. Mm-hmm. Closing this out, I just want to say that uh, especially here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, sunscreen is important. Everybody needs to be wearing sunscreen every day. Even if you are not sparing, mm-hmm. spending time outside, you need to be using moisturizer with sunscreen. Everybody of all colors and races needs <laughs> to wear sunscreen, even black folks, no matter what they tell you on the internet. And a part of the reason I say that is because people of color, especially people with darker skin tones, usually don't get diagnosed with skin cancer until it's late stage and mm-hmm. often deadly. Mm-hmm. So protect your skin. There's plenty of great chemical barriers instead of mineral ones that you can use to protect yourself. And, you know, since this is coming out in July, everybody, uh, you know, slather on your sunscreen when you go outside and stay safe. And that is how Josephine Baker and Coco Chanel made tan skin fashionable. Mm, yeah. Well, and the whole like sun damage thing is interesting because like I was thinking about my dad who like he worked outside a lot during his working years. And he's, you know, he's 80 years old now. And it's like once a year, once every couple of years, he goes in for this treatment where they put this like stuff all over his face. Uh-huh. It's supposed to kill off all the precancerous cells and his face will just turn into a big plum yep. because it's like all of that damage is like in there working its way out, you know? Mm-hmm. So it shows like, yeah, you don't necessarily see it, but it could be working under your skin. So. Yeah. Additionally, for anybody who is like, I'm like, I'm vitamin D deficient. Like we know somebody who ended up being severely vitamin D deficient. Mm. Mm -hmm. And this person happened to be very scared of, of skin cancer, but was also 
very scared of the chemicals in sunscreen. Mm -hmm. Listen, all you need to do is go outside when the UV index is low. Any weather app will tell you when the UV index is low. It's basically early in the morning or Mm -hmm. late in the day. While the sun is still out, sit outside for 10 minutes. You can even sit in the shade. Yeah, because you're still being exposed to the sun. What about the the, the UV lights, like the seasonal depression lamps and stuff? Do they help with the vitamin D? That I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Because there's also talk about, for me, uh, as somebody who gets my nails done and they get cured under a UV light, Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of people who are like, you should really be wearing sunscreen and stuff like that, um, who get really, really It's It's really like Charlotte has had to do a couple of explainer videos about this as well. And it's just like in, it's just insane. The mm-hmm. fucking yoga moms, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, like the cuckoo, like nut milk yoga moms who are like, no, you can't use any kind of sunscreen because you know, all of the chemicals in there are super harmful and they're carcinogenic and all that stuff. And all you need to do is like cover yourself in some carrot oil. And that is like nature's natural sunscreen. <laughs> Charlotte is always like, no, it's not. <laughs> it absolutely is not. Right. <laughs> like that is false. That is not true. And a big problem to this is a lot of this stuff gets picked up in people of color social media circles. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of people who are who have more melanated skin being like, I don't need to wear sunscreen. I can just slather myself. And then 10, 20, whatever years down the road, they're discovering like stage four melanomas. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to wear sunscreen. doesn't matter the color of your skin. Right. And there are wonderful sunscreens now that are formulated for dark skin. So you don't look yeah. like a ghost. Yeah. It is interesting thinking about, I hadn't really thought about this, but like the nineties was a weird, and again, talking youth culture where we did, it did seem like for a minute we moved away from it for fashion reasons, not so much health reasons. And I think it was mm-hmm. kind of a reaction against the 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 eighties. Cause I just think of like the eighties kind of Valley girl thing, which was like building off of like the Malibu Barbie thing. It was like, yeah. so like much focus on like tanned skin. And then like, when you get to the nineties, it was, it just did seem very different. And it did seem like, like all the super tanned people were, like you said, the older people. But yeah. then when I think about it, yeah, like post 2000, when we have like the Hilton sisters and stuff, mm-hmm. it seemed like it kind of came back. So, and I, I think again, the thing that you're thinking of is like, like Gwyneth Paltrow and Alicia Silverstone, they were 90s celebrities mm-hmm. and they were, they were sun kissed. Mm-hmm. They might not have been like tan. Right. But they were not, it wasn't that they 80s were not, look, but it wasn't. Yeah, they weren't no. Nicole Kidman. They weren't Anne Hathaway. They weren't like they were. They were. But this was also kids. like there was there was was also like the like Winona Ryder Beetlejuice era where it was like kind of moving into like that sort of gothy look. And then like you have you also had like the Kate Moss kind of heroin chic thing, which I think was like so there was like some competing things going on in the movie. right because additionally you also had all the women on Friends. They're and all, they were they were not pale. Yeah, they were pretty tanned. That's true. Yeah. So that's the thing is that like what that's why I was like your 90s <laughs> because yeah. you definitely had grunge culture that was very, you was know, reacting against it in a way. Right. But like Hollywood mm-hmm. was it still seems like it was less intense than the 80s cuz like the 80s it was like so it was like the Christy Brinkley kind of look, you know, well, which and was I just think a more overt kind of thing. Right. I think through the 70s and 80s, you had a very like 
California girl, endless mm-hmm. summer kind of vibe. Yeah. After that, it really started to like back off a little bit again. Cause I think we were starting to be like, uh, yeah. Skin cancer yeah. So then you moved to like Sunkist. But the funny thing was, is that in several articles, what I saw that was the big thing, which didn't happen in the nineties happened in the, I mean, late aughts, early tens. The thing that really pulled pop culture away from tanning was the fucking twilight movies. Yeah. Well, and that, but that, but in a weird way, those were almost a, a return to like the weird sort of semi goth 90s. Cause I think the 90s thing was like there was this whole like infatuation with Seattle and like the rainy, whatever. And then the Twilight was the same thing. It was like, but I think that that's a portion of the population. Well, no, I know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody. I'm just saying like these were these like trends that were popping up that were like noticeably different than what you saw in the 80s and i think yeah like when twilight came along it it was almost like the look was almost a return to like kind of a 90s grunge look like yeah kristen stewart's look was like very kind of 90s grunge yeah it's interesting how like cyclical these things are but yeah like that was also the same time as like jersey shore which was like pushing very hard the other way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if you look up like 90s celebrities again talking about like because i know grunge was like so big but when you're talking about like pop culture when you look at pictures when you look at the cast of friends when you look at like even leonardo dicaprio and stuff like that everybody's a little sun-kissed yeah but they're not they're not fair faucet in the 70s no and, you know so it was it was like it backed off of it, but it wasn't fully, yeah, I mean, it wasn't fully gone. And it does seem like then it got, it did increase again in the 2000s. Yeah, it was. Up through Twilight. No, I don't really know. It seems like now, now there's such a push to try to have the white beauty standard not be the beauty standard. Yeah. So, what But I, it's still like fighting with it. So it's like, there's a lot of conflicting things going on. There. So I think what you have going on is a bit more of acceptance of like different skin tones because that's mm-hmm. the other thing too is that there's a lot of people a lot of people especially through the aughts that were like you know sort of like oh my god i want to look like this person were people who were like biracial mm-hmm. so they didn't and that's the thing right too is that it's always walking this fine balance like when tanning started to become a thing you didn't want to be super super pale but also clearly you didn't want to be completely dark because mm-hmm. you know you didn't want that. You wanted it to look like you had spent some time on a luxurious tropical vacation mm-hmm. to varying degrees. It did go a little, just thinking back on my dad's Playboys, it went a little crazy in the 70s. Like No, absolutely. Were, but again, yeah. there were like, there weren't a ton of dark skinned black women in Playboy. And that's yeah. what I'm talking no, about. I'm, that's very true. That's very true. That's what I'm talking about is that you didn't want to be at either end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that, like I said, were like, oh my God, this person is so beautiful, were people who were mixed race. So they had, you know, they had like bronze skin, they had caramel skin, but it wasn't black, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, even now, even still now with all of this stuff, like it's it's harder to find very dark skinned people in like fashion magazines and cosmetic mm-hmm. sense. It's why Rihanna's um, Rihanna's makeup line Fenty is such a big deal because she has designed makeups for very dark complexions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because back in the, when I'm forgetting her name, 
it was a, she was a model in the 90s um and she was a dark-skinned black woman and that i remember was treated like very much like a novelty at the yeah. time yeah i'm naomi something are you talking about naomi campbell naomi campbell i think yeah yeah and even still she's not that dark yeah like, but like but you know? but compared to like what the standard was at the time it was right they talked about her like it, i remember just reading things that like really emphasize that yeah you know in a way that was like kind of gross and fetishistic yeah and i mean to be completely honest it's getting better Mm -hmm. but like most like you know there are a lot of makeup lines that you can get you know at your cvs your walgreens and stuff that like me right now having spent a lot of time in the sun this Mm -hmm. summer i'd have a hard time finding a shade for me (laughs) And Mm -hmm. like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So all of that to also say, take time to pause whenever some new, when any kind of new trend comes out and think about who might be profiting from you not having that particular trait Mm -hmm. inherently. And also know that like a trend is a trend and like you don't have to partake in it. I'm currently very frustrated with current fashion trends because everything is a fucking crop top and Mm -hmm. I I would like the rest of my shirt. (laughs) But right now crop tops are super in. So well, and like they're like, I don't know. I feel like my phone is spying on me because like I get a flood of um ads on instagram for like are you a fat guy here's the t-shirt for you to make you look less fat like i'm like thanks also okay (laughs) not okay i want to word this carefully a t-shirt can only do so much yeah like they're they're really putting a lot of faith in the magical power of this t-shirt and like even the videos i'm like that doesn't look that different than the before picture yeah in the big baggy t-shirt like, yeah it's real it's something that but they're trying real hard to convince me that it's what i need. right that like you need a slimming tea um which is just ridiculous okay yeah. this has gone on for too long <laughs> y'all thank you for listening please um don't forget to rate review and subscribe if you're listening to us on spotify and you got to this point in the episode you can go to our like main podcast page and you'll see a little place where you can review us or you can rate us actually you don't even have to write a review you can just give us a number of stars mm-hmm. and that will help us out and help us be seen by more people and uh i think just about everywhere you can listen to us there is some kind of Mm-hmm. reading and, and just so factor. you know not not to like not to like bag all desperately or anything but so you know like five star ratings definitely help a lot more than four star ratings like if you want to <laughs> help us out uh the algorithm is definitely like geared towards the number of five star ratings so. yeah so if you like what we do and you want to see us doing more of it and you want to get cool stuff like i don't know maybe some live shows or some, some merch, merch. Well. um uh, stuff like reviewing and subscribing and sharing would super help in the meantime stay weird stay curious and hopefully at least i will see you next time (laughs) bye bye (laughs) so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing